Hello, everybody. I am Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And we are here with you tonight for a live episode of Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on U.S. tax policy and inequity. So despite Congress's best efforts to craft legislation that is applied equally to every single taxpayer, It turns out that there can be situations, some provisions of the tax code that can actually create or exacerbate inequity. So tonight we're gonna talk about three of those provisions. And we're also gonna talk about some tax policies that Congress crafted specifically to try to address some inequity that already exists in the United States. Hello over there, Lisa. Hello, B. So I don't know how you're feeling. I'm feeling pretty good. Okay. All right. Good. I'm feeling really excited to be here with all of you tonight, all of you bright students to talk about taxes and to have our first ever live podcast. I'm super excited about the live part of this and to be in a room with such amazing minds of the future who are drawn here clearly by our celebrity power and their fandom of our podcast and not at all having anything to do with extra credit. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh, the the quest for knowledge is truly admirable. It's it's great. It it's is. Great. It's beautiful to see. Um. So why are we here tonight? Why do we have a podcast? Why do we have a podcast? Um. It turns out people seem to think that taxes are like complicated and boring and like scary and boring and like complicated and boring. And, and we don't think that taxes are like that. We think they're fun and interesting and we like talking about them. And we think they're also really impactful on people's lives. And so we started this podcast because we wanted to make other people find them as taxes as fun and interesting and understand the impact uh, as much as we do. A hundred percent. So whether you like it or not, whether you even are aware of it or not, taxes affect pretty much things that we do on almost a daily basis. and it's important to understand those effects. They're also everywhere. They're everywhere. And, everywhere. And so what we're going to learn a little bit about tonight is taxes don't only affect your financial decisions. Believe it or not, they can also affect social decisions and social interactions. And we've been fortunate enough to have some colleagues who have also assigned our podcast for extra credit. And so we've gotten feedback from students that they're really interested in societal inequities and how tax policy could be used to help fix that, or sometimes how tax policy goes wrong and makes those inequities worse. So that's why we chose that as our topic tonight. Absolutely. So we have three goals tonight. The first sort of overarching goal is education. We want to talk to you about some of these tax policies that have real social impacts so that you're aware. Second thing that we want to do a little bit more specifically is we're going to talk about three specific tax policies that although they treat taxpayers equally, actually exacerbate some inequities that we have here in the U.S., And then third, because we want to end on a little bit more of an optimistic note, we're going to talk about some tax policies that Congress crafted specifically to try to help mitigate some inequalities that we have in the U.S. related to race, gender, or socioeconomic status. So with that in mind, Lisa's going to kick it off. One thing that we have learned in our year of podcasting is that it's really important early on to make sure that everyone's on the same page. So the question I have for you is... 
talk to us a little bit about why we even have taxes. Why do we have to go through the process to create tax policy? So that you and I could have a podcast. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, Thank you, Congress. But in all sincerity, so there are three main reasons why we have taxes. One are probably, it's something that you can easily think of. We like nice things in society, things like roads and education and causeways in Florida that, you know, you can actually drive across and things like that. And so the government needs to collect money in order to create those things. And it turns out that tax revenue is pretty much almost the entire source of government funding in the U.S. Every dollar that we spend that we don't borrow pretty much comes from tax revenue. Okay. Second goal of taxes is to redistribute wealth. And you could think of plenty of examples from history where that redistribution went from those that didn't have a whole lot to those that had everything. So that's what we call regressive tax policy. Um, We live in a society now that is progressive. So we generally take from those that have more to give and help create a social safety net for those that have less. Things like unemployment insurance, social security for retirement savings, Medicare for healthcare, things like that. So that's why we have, there's a third reason. There is. Let's do the third reason. And then I'll move on. Yes. Okay. Okay. And she loves lists. So, yeah. All right. So the third reason is to actually shape behavior. That could be creating an incentive to do something, or it could disincentivize something by imposing a higher cost on it. So those are the three reasons for taxes. Um, But tell us what makes a good tax policy, good in quoting marks here, right? How could we evaluate it? It's a really fair point because we're trying to educate tonight and all of you are, or many of you are probably 18 or will be 18 soon. You can be voters. And one of the things that we get to vote for in this country are the people who make our tax policy. And so we want to be able to evaluate tax policy and decide for ourselves if we think it's good or not. So it turns out that the American Society, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants has a list of 10 elements of a good tax policy. We're going to focus on three of them tonight. The first is that if a tax policy is going to be good, if it's going to be effective, it should be neutral. And what we mean by that is that it should have a minimal effect on the decisions that we make as taxpayers. Did you have a question? I do have a question. Okay. I kind of just said that we were distorting behavior. You did. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Right. Yes. All right. So just, we're not, we're not at odds here. So it turns out that sometimes Congress wants to use the tax code to get us to do things that are in our best interest as a society, either because it might help stimulate the economy or it might get rid of some negative externality that we're trying to to eliminate. Like pollution. Like pollution. So we just passed a big tax act, the Inflation Reduction Act. It's got tons of incentives in there directed at both businesses and individuals trying to push people towards clean energy because that is an intentional behavior that Congress wants us to undertake. When we say neutral, what it means is that we don't want taxes to cause us to make a certain decision that we otherwise wouldn't have made. So let's say, for example, Lisa, that you wanted to start a podcast. I do. And you thought it was going to make you a millionaire. It's not. Okay. Um, You might want to form it as a business. Agreed. Okay. And you have choices. You could have organized yourself as a partnership. You could have organized yourself as a C-corporation. What we don't want is taxes to unduly influence your choice about how to run your business. That makes sense. Thank you. So we went. You can proceed. Thank you. We want taxes to be sufficiently neutral that we do things primarily for non-tax reasons. That's what we mean by neutrality. The other thing that we want is we want equity. And it turns out that we want equity in two ways because we're really greedy. 
We want horizontal equity, which means if we've got two taxpayers who are in roughly the same economic situation, we want them paying about the same amount of tax. And then like Lisa mentioned, we also want vertical equity because we live in a progressive tax system, which means that we want people who make more to pay more tax. So those are the three elements of a good tax system that we are gonna be focusing on today. Turns out though, that crafting a good tax policy, even looking at just those three out of the 10 elements of a good tax policy, it's really hard. It's, there's a lot of things that you're trying to optimize on and it can be really difficult. Maybe you fix one thing over here, but that pops up another issue over here along one of those other dimensions. So perfection is nearly impossible. And our talk today is gonna highlight some pretty well-intentioned policies. So the intention was good. The government was not trying to create inequity, but unfortunately it did create some inequities. And most tax policies, in fact, all of them have to treat people equally, but equality doesn't necessarily equate to equity. So back to that idea of defining our terms, because this was something that I didn't fully appreciate until recently. So I think it would be useful to have a little bit of a discussion about what is the difference between equality and equity. It's fair. They seem like they should be synonyms, but they are not. So the best way I had it explained to me was actually an example I heard about a school teacher, an elementary school teacher, who went up to a little boy in her classroom who had a scrape on his knee. And she said, would you like a Band-Aid for the scrape on your knee? And the little boy said, yes, that would make me feel a lot better. And so she gave him a Band-Aid and put it on his knee. And then she went to another student in the class who had a scrape on her elbow. And she said, I see you have a scrape too. Would you like a Band-Aid? And the little girl said, yes. And the teacher put a Band-Aid on the little girl's knee and went around the class and did the same thing, giving everybody a Band-Aid on their knee. So treating every student equally but that Band-Aid really only helped the students that had a problem with their knee. It did not help those that had a problem on their elbow or somewhere else. So we picked three tax policies to highlight today. Sadly, there are more than three tax policies that even though they treat everybody equally can lead to these disparate impacts and outcomes that Lisa was referring to. So the way that we settled on these three was we tried to pick policies related to activities that you are either currently engaged in or likely to be engaged in in the near future. So we are going to talk about tax policies related to getting an education, getting a job, and getting married. All right, so let's start with a tax policy related to getting a college education. So the tax policy of the federal government allows taxpayers a benefit to make a deduction, get a deduction on their tax return related to interest that they incur on debt that they take out to get a college education. So to be specific, taxpayers can deduct up to $2,500 of interest expense on student loans. And if you have interest that is above that amount, well, you're out of luck and you're not going to get any tax benefit for that. So any interest that you spend that is above $2,500 isn't going to generate a tax benefit for you. Now, why does this policy exist? It exists to subsidize higher education, not just for people who can afford it, but for people who also might have to take out some loans to get that college education. Because we know that in this country, for the most part, college isn't free. If you're not fortunate enough to get a scholarship, and if you're not fortunate enough to have a family that can pay that tuition for you, you might have to take out some loans to be able to do that. 
All right, and so that's why this policy is there. We want a more educated population because studies have shown that when a citizenry is more populated, the economy is better. There's more likely to be innovation. So the government has a very strong economic incentive to encourage people to get an education, all right? So I think on its face, this seems like a really great policy. Lisa, what could possibly go wrong here? So the problem with the policy is that white students have on average about half as much debt as black students. So the average white student is able to deduct 100% of their interest and the average black student is not because that deduction was capped at $2,500. Now, why is that the case? Well, we know we have a wealth gap here in the US. We know we have uh, intergenerational wealth that differs significantly across white versus black families. And so those white students maybe are better able to rely on their parents or older generations to help pay for their higher education. Black students instead not only have to go to the first tier of direct federal loans, but often have to go to the second tier called PLUS loans. Those loans allow you to take out higher amounts of debt, but in return for that higher amount of debt, you end up paying also a higher interest rate. So more debt, higher interest rates, and now we've exceeded that deduction cap of the policy. Okay, so you just said that in words, and I believe everything that you said, but I'm a numbers person and I would like an example, please. Let's do an example. All right, so take a black graduate who has a little bit more than twice as much debt as the white graduate student. So the black graduate student has loans of 55,000. The white graduate student has loans of 26,000. First year of interest, as you would expect, we're actually holding rates constant here. So we haven't imposed a higher rate on the black graduate student. Holding rates constant, as you would expect, the first year of interest on that debt is a little more than twice as much as the white graduate student's interest in that same year. Okay, so the black student gets the full deduction. They get all $2,500 because their interest is almost $2,900. The white student has a deduction of $1,372 exactly equal to their amount of interest. So while the white student gets actually a smaller amount of deduction here, um, the subsidy of the debt in terms of the after-tax cost of the debt to the students is only 18% for the black graduate student and 22% for the white graduate student. So the fact that the black graduate student had more debt and that the policy was capped at $2,500 means that the black student is hurt relative to the white student because of that cap. And like you said, this is happening, even though when you look at it, the black student actually got a higher tax deduction. They got to deduct a whole $2,500. White student didn't get to do that. But because the black student had so much more interest expense to begin with, because they had more loans to begin with, like you said, the tax subsidy is lower. Equal treatment, disparate impact. Exactly. And so if we look at uh, how the benefit of this tax policy is spread across households by income of the household, unfortunately, you can see that the low income households that need this benefit the most, they need the most help to afford higher education. They're the ones who receive the least benefit. They actually receive less than half the benefit of median income households. And one thing to note about this is that um, this is among taxpayers who are actually eligible to get the deduction. So it's not like you can look at this and say, well, people who go to college make more money and that's why they're getting more of the deduction. It turns out that a really big reason a lot of these lower income households don't get the benefit of the deduction is either they don't know about it 
or because the calculation is sufficiently complex that they either don't try or they make an error when trying to claim the benefit and they don't get all that they should. So we're talking about student loan interest and it strikes me that this might be a stupid thing to talk about because didn't President Biden just say he was going to forgive all of our student loans? He, he did. There's a little bit of a question as to how much he's going to be able to do that now. Okay. But, but it's a fair question. Okay. Um, unfortunately, the answer is pretty much the same in that the student loan forgiveness is very likely to benefit the higher income people more so than the lower income people who needed it the most. So the Penn Wharton Group estimates that about 70% of the forgiveness forgiveness is going to go to the top 60% of Americans by income, and individuals making between $82,000 and $141,000 are going to receive the greatest share of the forgiveness at 28%. And just to put that into perspective, median household income in the U.S. right now is about $70,000, so more than 50% of households have income less than these amounts. So this is an example, this isn't exactly a tax policy, but this is just another illustration of how something that is intended to either benefit everybody equally, or in this case, it was actually supposed to benefit lower and middle income households, isn't really doing that in practice. So lots of problems with the tax policy related to higher education. Why don't we talk about getting a job? All right. So absolutely. After you graduate, you are no doubt going to get a fantastic job that you love, that is going to pay you fairly. And one question that I'm sure you are sitting here asking yourselves is how is the government going to tax my income from compensation? All right. So many of you might know that compensation from a job is treated as ordinary income in the U.S. And that unfortunately gets taxed currently at a top rate of 37%. It's a graduated bracket, so a graduated scale, tops out at 37%. Um, And then on top of that, because of the fact that you are working uh, as opposed to investing, um, so you have compensation for your services, you are subject to payroll taxes as well. That's in addition to income taxes. That is not an income tax. It is separate. It pays for things like federal unemployment insurance and Social Security and Medicare and state-level unemployment insurance as well. And so that's going to be at least 7.65% up to about your first $150,000 that you earn. And that starts adding up. There are lower rates on investment income, but traditionally economists have been pretty loath to tax investment income at these high rates because they didn't want to disincentivize investment. Investment being important to the economy and economic growth and all of that. That view is starting to change a little bit with the uh, rise of interest and awareness of in- inequality and inequity in society. And uh, you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it's totally logical, right? If we want people to invest, if that's the behavior that we're trying to shape, then one way that Congress can do that is by offering lower tax rates on investment income. It's logical. It makes sense. The problem is, like Lisa just explained, what that means is if you're out there working and you make a dollar of income, you could be losing as much as 45 cents of that dollar to the government in taxes. Whereas if somebody sitting next to you is making a dollar in investment income, they might only be giving up 24 cents of that dollar to the government in taxes. That's quite a difference. And what's really kind of sad about this particular policy is that, you know, it it kind of hits the trifecta of inequity. It disproportionately affects people of lower socioeconomic status. It disproportionately affects people of color and it disproportionately affects women. Let's talk through that. 
So what this graph is showing is the composition of income across income brackets. That dark blue line is wages and salaries, income from working. That bright pink line is income from investing. And what you see here is as people get wealthier, moving from the side from left to right, that pink bar gets a lot bigger, all right? So people who are at the lower end of the income distribution here are potentially giving up a higher percentage of their income to the government in taxes. The other thing that we know is that women tend to invest less than their male counterparts do. There's lots of reasons for that. Women tend to be a little bit less risk, uh, more risk averse. Uh, women actually tend to think of themselves as less competent investors. They're less confident in their investing abilities. And the third thing that we know is also that people of color are less inclined to invest. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that they have less intergenerational wealth, like Lisa talked about. They have less of a security blanket, a safety net to fall back on if those investments don't pan out. And they also have less exposure to education about investing policies from family members and things of that nature relative to their white counterparts. So this idea that we're going to tax wage income and investment income differently can hurt people from lower socioeconomic status, women, and people of color. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Other people, smarter than I am, have pointed this out before and highlighted the fact that it really kind of is unfair. So do we know who this is here? Out loud. Anybody, all of you, Warren Buffett, all right? So Warren Buffett gave an interview back in 2007 and said, quote, I will probably be the lowest paying taxpayer in the office. That's insane. That's mind boggling, all right? And when you dig a little bit further down into this news article, the journalist concluded that Warren Buffett paid a rate of only about 18% on his income, whereas the average person in his office staff paid a rate of almost 33%. Now, to be clear, Warren Buffett paid a lot more tax in dollar terms because he had a lot more income, but his rate of taxation was almost just half as much as the rate of taxation paid by those other people in his office who weren't making as much investment income as Warren Buffett was. Now, you know I like Warren Buffett. I didn't know that. Oracle of Omaha, okay. financial genius. Okay. I'm a bit of a fan. Okay. But I also like to verify things myself and get my hands dirty with the data. So could, can, can we look at the numbers ourselves, please? All right. So just to prove it out with math, because numbers don't lie, Let's say we have a laborer. So like Dolly Parton, nine to five. Dolly Parton, nine to five. I like it. And we have an investor, someone who's just kind of sitting back and let the money roll in. Digging deep here. I'm thinking Jermaine Dupree, money ain't a thing. I am very impressed at the breadth of those musical references. Um, yeah, so we'll take those two individuals, Dolly Parton and Jermaine Dupree. Uh, Dolly Parton making $50,000 a year from a job. So this is wage and salary income. She is working hard for the money. She is. She's going to pay about $6,700 of income tax. And then she's also got that $3,800 of FICA tax that kind of sneaks up on you there. So her take-home pay is going to be just north of $39,000. She's paying an average tax rate of 21%. Other side, we've got an investor sitting back, letting the money roll in, also making $50,000. Income taxes, lower rate, only $1,200. And we get away without having to pay any payroll taxes. 
So this investor is walking away with almost $49,000 in after-tax income for a cool average tax rate of only 2.5%. That is insane. It's a big difference. It's a huge difference. And what I hope you can see here is that we have just violated horizontal equity pretty badly. We've got two taxpayers who are making the exact same amount of money, and we are taxing them quite differently. And if you go back to that last slide with my, my favorite financial oh, guru. Let me, let me put it up so you can see them one more time. That's violating vertical equity. Yeah. Pretty badly. Yes. So this is a situation, and it's been this way for quite a while, where we are violating both of our equity principles and taxing wealthier people at a lower rate of tax, and in some situations, taxing people with the same income quite differently. All right. So we covered getting educated. We've yes. covered getting a job. Our next topic might be a little bit further out for some of you, but it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, financial decisions that you will make in your life. Did you just say the biggest financial decision? Did you say marriage is a financial decision? Yeah. You are not a romantic. Finance is my love language. Let it go. Finance is not a love language. It is in my house. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Finance, not a love language. The policy that we're talking about here is that in the U.S., if you are married for reasons other than finances or even for finances, um, the IRS is going to allow you or Congress is going to allow you to file one tax return, report all of your income on that one tax return, and subject your pooled income to a set of tax rates. Okay. It turns out this is not the case in every country around the world. In fact, in Canada, just to the north of us, Every person is required to file their own tax return and pay their own taxes, regardless of if they're married or not. Now, why this is the case in the U.S. is kind of a long story, but ironically, it stems from a desire um, a long, long time ago to make sure that married taxpayers were all treated equally. It used to be the case that there were some different laws that applied to married taxpayers depending on what state they lived in. We wanted to do away with that, and we wanted to make it possible to really simplify the tax return process for married couples by letting them file just one tax return. And that seems like a pretty good policy to me. I don't know how you can argue with that, but I'm going to stand back and wait for it. Yeah. So there's a problem here. Yeah. And uh -huh. the problem is that marriage can actually increase or decrease your tax liability relative to remaining unmarried. So I'm not saying don't couple up. I'm saying think about the impact that getting married versus remaining together and remaining unmarried could have on your tax burden. So uh, this is data from the Office of Tax Analysis. And what it's showing is the relative share of income that's earned by a second earner in the house. Um, and it's showing the tax penalty or benefit that changes as that share of income earned by the second earner increases. And so what you can see is that households that rely on a single earner are more likely to get a marriage tax benefit, so they're better off getting married. Whereas households that rely on two earners, they're worse off. They get a marriage tax penalty. And that's a problem because we know that households where income is earned more equally between the two partners, so where it's split 50-50 or 60-40, say, they are far more likely to be Black than to be white. So those Black households are far less likely to gain from getting married. They're far less likely to get a marriage tax benefit. And if they do get one, it is likely to be much smaller than a comparable white household. 
Let's look at the numbers. Yeah, because the thing is, I'm not good with graphs. I will admit that publicly on a Zoom recorded uh, podcast here. So I kind of see what's going on here, but I don't totally see what's going on here. So let's do an example to make it crystal clear. Okay, and so what we're going to do here is we're going to take a black couple and a white couple, and we're going to hold total income in the household constant. So they're doing pretty well for themselves. Both households are earning $205,000. The difference is that in the black couple, you've got two workers earning that income, and in the white couple, you've just got one earner. Yes, ma'am. Why is that? Why do we need two people to make $205,000 in this example and only one person to make $205,000 in that example? Yeah, it's a great question. Unfortunately, we have a pay gap here in the U.S. where a Black man earns on average 73% of a white man and a Black woman earns on average 63%, 63 cents on the dollar. So it takes them two earners to get to the same amount of income that one white person might be able to earn. And that pay gap is not just isolated to black individuals, it's going to be any non-white individual. It's even going to be white women, right? So a uh, two female couple here is going to have a pay gap relative to a white man and a white woman. Okay. So we've held income constant. Um, we have equality here. Their federal taxes due when they get married is the same because they have the same level of income. So they're equally treated. The problem is if you compare that to what they would pay if they remained unmarried, the savings, the marriage tax benefit to the black couple is only about $2,500, but the marriage tax benefit to the white couple is over $13,000. So that white couple saves about $11,000 more from getting married than the black couple. And that adds up. So if you take that $11,000 and they're smart with it and they put it in the investments over a course of a 30-year career, and let's assume in rate of return of 6%, which is relatively low by historical standards, but go with me on this, that white couple ends up about a million dollars richer than the black couple. That's a lot of money. It's a big difference. It's a huge difference. And now what we've done is we've violated that neutrality principle because we have let taxes affect the decision of whether or not we should get married. And we've affected it differently based on the race or the income composition of those two couples. Now, while we have presented this scenario here talking about a marriage benefit, what that means is that the flip side of that is that there is actually a penalty in the U.S. right now for being single. And it turns out that if you look at the data carefully enough, there are also some racial differences there as well. White couples are more likely to get married earlier on in their lives than couples that have at least one member who is a person of color. So what that means is they're delaying their ability to start reaping this marriage tax benefit and invest it in a way that Lisa talked about that can start compounding and adding to their wealth. And that's just one problem with getting married. It's the only problem with getting married. It's the, it's the only one we'll talk about today, but. All right, so now we're gonna switch gears a little bit, try to lighten it up a little bit, get focused on some optimistic things. And we're gonna talk about some tax policies where Congress or somebody, some lobbyist group, uh, some legislative aid identified an inequity that exists in society and said, hey, maybe this is a situation where you can, we can use tax policy for good. We can use tax policy to shape behavior in a way that might actually allow us to mitigate, reduce that inequity that exists. So the first three policies that we're gonna talk about are business tax incentives. And the very first one is something that we refer to as the Work Opportunity Tax Credit or the WOTC. So the problem is that there are individuals in the United States who have more difficulty getting a job than other people. 
Groups of these individuals include ex-felons, uh, welfare recipients, and disabled veterans. So what Congress did about 40 years ago was create a tax incentive to give to employers who hire workers from these historically disadvantaged groups. Businesses can actually get a tax credit, which is a dollar for dollar reduction in their taxes as a percentage of the salary that they pay to workers that they hire from these disadvantaged groups. So the goal of this policy on the one hand is to have more diverse workforces, which is something that we're seeing a lot of interest in in the ESG movement. It also helps provide access to good jobs for people who otherwise maybe wouldn't have the ability to do that. And having a job is important, not just for financial reasons, but there's also been extensive work to show that having a job facilitates a lot of other skills that are just good for life, like being organized. I like being organized. Getting along with people. I like it mostly getting along with people. Taking direction. I don't like taking direction. Okay. So once you have a good job, you might start looking for a place to live. So Lisa, tell us about the tax incentives related to affordable housing. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's heard, but we're kind of having a little bit of a cost of living crisis in the U.S. right now in a lot of localities. Um, we're having a homelessness crisis. And so uh, a lot of this is driven by people not being able to afford a place to live and put a roof over their heads. So there's a tax incentive called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. And the idea is to encourage businesses to build or rehabilitate um, locations, rental facilities, uh, rental housing for low-income residents. And a lot of localities are starting to require that any new residential building have a certain number of these low-income units, with the idea being that we could increase supply and ideally keep rental prices down overall. So we've got a job. Yes. We put a roof over our head. Mm -hmm. You might be thinking about getting married. Yep. Family kind of tends to maybe, for some people at least, follow after that. And I've heard, I've heard that um, having a job and having a family, a little, little bit of a balancing act. It is. So it is, uh, it can be challenging. Speaking as a, a working parent, it can be challenging to have a full-time job and to have a kid because it turns out that in the United States, the government will only start taking care of your kid on a regular basis once they turn five but you need to do something with them for that first five years of their lives. Taking a toddler to work typically doesn't work out that well. Um, and it turns out that only 11% of workers have access to employer-provided childcare. And employer-provided childcare is really nice because A, it's a person to take care of your kid, but also oftentimes if it's at your place of work, that makes your life a lot easier. You don't have to go to multiple places. You don't have to drop your kid off at daycare and then go to work. If your kid gets sick, you can immediately be there to pick them up. Maybe you can even pop down and visit them during your lunch hour. There's lots of benefits to having employer-provided childcare, but only 11% of workers have access to it. And it turns out that a lack of affordable, convenient childcare is one of the major drivers of the worker shortage that we're experiencing right now. So there is a tax incentive for businesses that provide child care to their employees. And there's two ways that you can do this. You can either construct and run your own site daycare facility. Patagonia does that. If you don't want to do that, maybe because it's too costly or there's too much liability, you can also outsource it and have a third-party daycare provider um, offer child care to your workers. Either way, this is great because studies have shown 
that when there is employer-provided childcare specifically, you tend to see more women in management positions at those companies and greater employee loyalty. This is a good thing all around. But this benefits the business. It does. And this is a nice tax incentive. Mm -hmm. It's a great perk. Um, but spoiler alert, kids are expensive. And so I would like to know, is there any direct tax benefit to me as a parent for having one of these expensive little things? Yes, there is. Okay. It will not compensate you for having the expensive little thing, but it helps. Um, so a lot of times couples have to choose between having two earners and paying for childcare or having one earner and one person stay home. And so to help with mitigate that trade-off, basically, there is a child tax credit. So there's a credit for every child that you have. And then it actually starts phasing out as you earn more and you're more capable of paying for that by yourself without government support. So that's getting back to our horizontal, or sorry, our vertical equity. Yes. Um, and it can be expanded in times of need. We learned this during COVID. So they increased the amounts of the payments. They actually made the payments more regularly during the year, monthly payments, instead of waiting for your tax return to get this credit. And time and time again, studies have shown that this policy pulls children out of poverty. So pretty good policy. Excellent policy. With bipartisan support. Yes. So these are some things that the government has tried to do to resolve inequities. I think some of us here in this room might be wondering, what can we do? Well, we have an answer for that. So first thing, you're already taking a step towards. So you've checked that box. You can pat yourselves on your back. You're here tonight educating yourselves about taxes and socially beneficial tax policies. And then our request would be that you continue to learn about policies like this, because we've only highlighted a few. And that you also continue to educate those around you, your friends and family. And most importantly, related to you being here as business students, for those of you who aspire to become tax consultants, or just for those of you who want to be business consultants in general, knowing of these opportunities that exist can be very beneficial to your clients and to the companies that you work for. So let's say you work for a company or you have a client who would love to do something related to employer-provided childcare, but they think it's too expensive. Well, the whole point of these tax incentives is to lower the cost of those things to the company so they're more likely to do it. And if you know about these policies and you can inform your clients about these policies, you can really add value, not just to your client's bottom line, but you also in some way can help society, even as a tax person. And I think that's pretty cool. It's very cool. And one of the problems that you've pointed out repeatedly with some of these policies is there's actually a very low uptake rate with many of them because people just aren't aware that they exist. So educate yourselves, educate others, and help improve that awareness. Absolutely. And then once you become educated, vote. You don't have to vote for anything that we've talked about here tonight. We're not here to like endorse specific policies and get you to go out and support our political agenda. That's not the point. The point is just to educate yourselves and vote for the policies that you think are the most effective and that you support. We really enjoy having an informed electorate. And an active one. Yes. Yes. All right. The third thing you can do, we've mentioned a few times the pay gap and the consequence the pay gap kind of has and trickling down and affecting a disparate outcome of some of these policies that treat people equally, but ignore the, the different earning ability of different groups in U.S. society. So do what you can to fight to close that pay, pay gap. Someday you're going to be a manager. Someday you're going to be setting the pay for some people. So keep that in mind. 
And then finally, uh, implement what, what's called nudges. Um, these are ways of gently encouraging people to do things that are hopefully in their own best economic interest. So a big example that's being discussed right now is to automatically enroll employees in retirement savings, employer-provided uh, retirement accounts, things like 401ks. You can unenroll if you choose to. That's fine. You're not forced to save for retirement, but... Studies have shown that employees tend to be very passive when it comes to saving for retirement. And so if you automatically enroll them, you can increase the amount of savings that people have and start to decrease that wealth gap. So it's pretty important. Absolutely. All right. So assuming that none of you have ever heard an episode of our podcast, we always like to end it with a segment that we call the good, the bad, and the ugly. Which we shamelessly stole from a classic movie that my co-host has never seen. Another thing to tell you about us is that I am the resident pessimist of the group. So typically when we start this segment, I am always turning to Lisa to say something good because I never have anything good to say. She has a nickname, Bleak B. Is my nickname. Her, also her rapper name. Is well earned. Mm -hmm. um, but tonight I can definitely start out with the good. And that is that we got to be here with all of you tonight and do this live podcast. So thank you to uh, Professor Wild. Thank you to RSM. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to all of you for being here in the audience and letting us do this because it's been pretty fun. It's been super fun. And you've left me with the bad. So thanks for that. Um, so I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, which is creating good tax policy. It's hard. We're not trying to say it's easy and that all policies should magically be better because it is hard. But we do think that with some increased awareness of some of these issues, the pay gap, the wealth gap, and thinking about disparate impact, hopefully we could do better, but it is hard. Absolutely. So that just leaves the ugly. And in this case, I'm, I'm trying to expand my vocabulary. I'm trying to be a good example for my eight-year-old. She likes to call things dumb. And I say, we can't say dumb. We have to be more colorful with our language. Um, so instead of saying ugly tonight, I'm going to say discouraging. So I think the thing that's been discouraging about the talk and discouraging putting it together is that it turns out that policymakers can't do it alone. So even if policymakers have identified an area of inequity and they have crafted a tax policy that they think could be very effective at addressing that inequity, people still have to go out and take advantage of the tax policy. And so we hope that tonight we've taken one small step in spreading the word about some of these beneficial tax policies because it really does take more than just the policy itself. People have to take advantage of it in order for it to affect any real change. And that's all we have time for tonight. So if you are so inclined, please join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses. And go Hawkeyes. Go Hawkeyes.